Well, amen. Well, good morning, Salem. It's great to see you guys. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. Um, yeah, it's Christmas time. I mean, this is like singing these songs. And boy, these songs, I feel like this is something that every kid and every adult, every age just gets to sing along. And, uh, and I'm sure there's a kid in this room who has set a stopwatch or like a timer, or like a countdown, and just will do this the whole time, you know? Till Christmas, right? Because we're getting closer and closer and closer. It's right on the corner. I just remember the anticipation, the thrill of Christmas when I was younger. And it changes as we grow, uh, as, as the, the older that we get, but it's still there. And I just love, love Christmas, right? It's this awesome, awesome time of year. So, um, this last night, uh, my wife and I um, spent our evening uh, watching uh, Nebraska uh, play Wisconsin. Yep, yeah, there was a hurry. Yep, I heard it. So some of you know what I'm going to say. Um, this is going to be painful again, but just, just bear with me. Um, Nebraska-Wisconsin women's uh, volleyball national championship game. Uh, Nebraska was seated 10, and uh, Wisconsin was seated 4. And, uh, and full disclosure, I didn't even know that either of them was in the bracket until I happened uh, to see it pop up on ESPN app one day, and I thought, oh, wow, this is great. This is good. And then they just, they just kept winning. <laughs> you know, like Nebraska beat uh, the 3 seed, then they beat the 2 seed, and then they got to the finals. And, and sure enough, as God planned it, they played my wife's team. So, um, so it's Nebraska versus Wisconsin, and it was really fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so we're watching, you know, watching this this game, and you know, I love volleyball. I love watching it. I love the camaraderie that the girls share. Um, and one of the things that the that the commentator said, I just thought this was so great. This is super, super neat. He said these teams have played each other so many times. He said there's this deep love and respect and care for each other. Which, by the way, I don't know how they know those things, but apparently they do. Um, you know, and, as, and so I'm going, yeah, yeah, this is great, this is great. But then he says this, he goes, here's the problem. They both want the same thing. <laughs> this is going to cause some conflict, right? So it's like, hey, we love you, but we hate you, you know? It's kind of what's happening on the court, right? Because like, they, they want to win. They wanna, and so, like, for me, who hasn't engaged in this series at all, I have no clue how Nebraska Volleyball have been doing until this moment, <laughs> you know, that Nebraska plays Wisconsin and everything changes, you know? The life, the world is a new lens, a new perspective, right? And uh, so you're cheering, and it goes, and it keeps going, and it's a best of five, uh, type of a thing, and so it goes all the way into the fifth set, and they only played a 15 points in the fifth set instead of 25, and so uh, Wisconsin took like a 6-0 lead, and I was like, oh, of course, this is par for Nebraska, but they, bought, they battled back, and they keep going, and they keep going, but eventually Wisconsin gets to the end, and, and they get to that 15 point, and, uh, and they, somebody hits a ball, looks like it's out of bounds, and they call Wisconsin winning. And, uh, but as soon, and so the, the crowd goes wild, the team goes wild, and, and, uh, and I'm immediately depressed, right? And so, because <laughs> my fandom is just exaggerated in this moment, right? And, um, and so the guy throws a challenge card, and they review it, and they, they're reviewing it in slow motion from every single possible angle, right? There's this angle, and this angle, and this angle, and sure enough, as the ball goes through, these fingers just move back on this girl's hand, right? And it's clearly a tip to go out of bounds. And so it's Nebraska point. And so as the guy announces this, he goes, you know, point Nebraska. And I just in the middle of it, I was like, yes! <laughs> yes, yes, yes! And then I heard this upstairs. And Nikki goes, 
what'd you do? <laughs> look, look what you did. I'm like, but the, but the inside of me, what's stirring is that there's still hope. There's still hope. Nebraska can still come back and win. And then two points later, we lost. But it was a great, <laughs> but it was a great match. It was really fun to watch, right? It was really, and when I, as I was processing through this and thinking about stuff for this morning, I thought, wow, like how, how important the word hope and the anticipation that it provides is to our normal day life. Right? It just is it's so prevalent and so intrinsic to the human nature and just in the simplest things that, that we go throughout life and we're waiting for and longing for something to happen. Like we're just, we're excited and hopeful, right? And we always want for like, like a Sunday to go great, you know? So I walked in this morning and I walk in this door over here. First thing that happens is the alarm goes off and I'm like, ah, well, that's not what I would have hoped for. You know, and then we get over here, I turn on the computer to double check some stuff, get things going, and it shows me your computer has a problem. Give it time, it will reboot. 15 minutes later, didn't do anything. I was like, oh, that's not what I hoped would happen, you know? And so we, like, our computer crashed this morning, and so we had to piece together slides, and so you have to bear with us a little bit as we're dealing with some of that, right? But this is not what we hope for. And it happens, it happens in these small things, like every day where we're longing for something, we, we have this expectation that really life would go the way that we want it to, and when it doesn't go the way that we want it to, right, we get, we get depressed, and so our hopes rise, our hopes fall, and this is a daily battle. It's a daily thing. It's a part of the human nature. But if it happens in small things, it certainly happens in big things, doesn't it? Right? It's not just these little things like volleyball. Right? It's, it's like the idea of the finances in my home. How am I gonna, there are people in this room who are going, how am I going to pay my bills this winter? Right? There are people in this room struggling with marriage. There's hope for that. Maybe there's people in this room who are struggling with singleness, and there's hope. Man, I always thought that I would be, be married by now or something. Like There's these, these big things that, 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 that reveal this, this need and desire and longing in our heart, which, really will hope, which is really what hope entails. And it's really this longing that, that life will be better off um, if such and such things happen. In life, I'll say this, um, hope uh, can bring tons of life. In fact, hope is the most powerful thing that you can give somebody. It's one of the most powerful things you can give somebody because it gives them a righteous discontent with the way that things are and go, yeah, like, like what if life was like this? And so it's really powerful. But it can also be really dangerous if hope turns into expectations because life rarely goes the way that we want. And so we have to make sure that we understand there's a right kind of hope that we're processing, right? Which is why we're talking about, surprise, Jesus, right? And we're in this series leading up into Christmas, and it's the series called The Thrill of Hope. And it's called The Thrill of Hope, that title, that word is significant, because what we've been doing is we've been tracing, we started last week, we've been tracing the biblical story from Genesis to Jesus, right? And what we're going to see, there's this X factor in the story, is that it takes forever, like it takes forever to God to show up and to make things right. And thousands and thousands of years go by, and the people are waiting, and they have hope. And they have hope. And sometimes it's here and oftentimes it's down here. Like, God, what are you doing in life? Like, why is, why is life this way? Why is life so difficult? Why is it so challenging? And we saw that last week in the story. It goes up and it goes down. It rises and it falls. 
but hope always remains because it's sticky. It's something that we can't do life without. We're always longing for something to show up and to happen in life. There's this eager anticipation, especially around Christmas time. And so here's my, here's my hope this morning. My hope for us this morning, uh, and kind of come from last week to this week combined, and then with what we're going to talk about on Christmas Eve, is that you not only see the story unfold, that not only that you see hope unfold, but that you feel it that you begin to see with new heart and anticipate Jesus in a new way as we put it in the story, okay? And last week, Ken started this, this whole thing by looking at the need for a king, right? Because he's starting the creation story. You got Adam and Eve, right? They, right, they're there. And then what happens is that God says you can do whatever you want except for this tree. What do they do? They look at the tree and then they decide to eat the fruit. And their, their whole hope in doing this is that life will be better if I eat the fruit, right? And instead, it plunges humanity into chaos. It flips everything upside down. They're deserving of death, all these crazy things. And yet, here's the flip. Here's what, here's what happens. This crazy thing, just a few verses later, God looks at them in the midst of their crud, and he says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, what the author is doing here is he's describing this cosmic battle that's, about, that's coming into play, right? It's this, this future event, this prophecy, really, about this battle between the serpent and the offspring of the woman and the man, right? And it's ultimately pointing to Jesus. And he says the serpent is going to bruise the heel, but ultimately this king, this prototype king, is going to vanquish and kill and destroy the serpent and his power, right? And that's the story, right? That's the Genesis 3.15. It's really what some people call, they call it the proto-evangelium, which means it's the very first gospel. And it's just a few verses after the world plunges into chaos, and God says, guess what? I'm going to make this right. I'm going to do what you can't do, right? I'm going to make this right. This is not up to you. This is up to me, and I am going to bring this king into the world. But as Ken pointed out, as you begin to process through the story, you get all the way to the book of Judges, and guess what? It's been 1,700 years, and there's still no There's no servant. There's no righteous servant. There is nobody. 1,700 years. Do you remember what you had for breakfast on Monday? Like 1,700 years. The United States is 245 years old. Math people, times that by seven. And you get just the amount of time in the story so far. Right? You take seven histories of the United States. That's how long the people have been waiting. And that's just, that's crazy. 1,700 years these people have been waiting. And it gets to the time of the judges, right? So God raises up these judges, and so when there's a judge, they do good, and when there's not a judge, they do bad, right? And in fact, at one point, the people come to this guy named Gideon, who's this righteous guy, and they say, Gideon, here's what we want. We want you and your offspring to be a king for us, to be a ruler for us. And Gideon, like, put yourself in his shoes. You want to make me king? Awesome, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I get a fortified city, cool chariot, I'm just like a different version of a car, you know. Um, whatever you get with that, all those cool things. Yeah, make me. And he says, no, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. I shall not rule over you, nor shall any of my sons, and here's why. Because God will rule over you. 
That's the way it's designed. That's what you're designed. You and I, in the garden, there was no king because there's no need for a king because God was the ruler. And so this way, that was always the hope is that God in this theocracy would be the king of our hearts as individuals. And yet the fall totally throws that around and it messes everything up. And so there's this need for God to make things right. And how he has to do that is he needs to send a king, right? But here's the deal. At the end of Judges, right, here's what it says at the end of Judges, right? This is how last week's story ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel, right? So 1,700 years, they're in the promised land. There's no king. Um, What's the pattern? (laughs) Everyone does what was right in their own eyes. 1,700 years of waiting. How's that working out for you? Are you doing doing okay? Yeah, you've had 1,700 years to figure this thing out. You think you're going to do okay? No, everybody did. I, I, every person, I am the judge of what is right and wrong in the world. There's no king, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So there's this deep need for a king, but there's this deep need for the right kind of king. This is tremendously important, the right kind of king, because not just any normal king will do, okay? So anticipating this, you go back to Deuteronomy, and as a part of this story, here's what God says about future kings of Israel, okay? Here's what he says in verse 14. He says, when you come to the land, he's talking about the promised land, so judges, you know, Joshua, they they cross over the Jordan River, they go in, they make this conquest, and they take possession of the land, and here they are in the promised land, judges up and down, but at the end of the judges, there's no king, right? Things are not going well, but he says, in this moment, when you possess this land and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all of the nations that are around me, God's response is, you may indeed set a king over you, but it's one that the Lord will choose, right? The Lord will choose this king. And here's the, here's the qualifications for this king. It says, one from among your brothers shall be set over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, right? So he must be your brother, not a, not a foreigner. First thing, right? Uh, he must not acquire many horses, Okay, second thing, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. All right, so you remember the Exodus story, you go back and you, you go back and you realize that like, like Egypt becomes this, this place that's symbolic of slavery for the people. In fact, the Exodus is the primary theme in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus in the New Testament. It's all about freedom from slavery. And so as a part of that rich and deep theology in these commandments, what, what God is saying is that, I don't even want you to go back there, not even to get horses, because that's associated with your past, and I don't want you to enter back into slavery. I want you to be free in the promised land under my rule in the king that I choose. That's what he's saying, right? So no horses, or not many horses. Um, And then he, he says this, right? He says, he goes on. He says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold, right? If you're a potential king and that's your list of qualifications, right? Are you going to be in? So like no gold, not many horses, not many concubines, right? Like in that time, in that age, it's a different world, right? But that was the way it is. You look at this, you go, wow, that's not like it's not a, I wouldn't apply for that job. So people are going to think, 
right? This is, this is the thing. And so what, what God is doing here is he's setting up the standard for this king because every other king in the ancient Near East was doing those exact same things. They're vying for power uh, and money and wealth, right? And military strength, and, right? And they want life to be luxurious. Their, their hope in life is, is within their control. I'm just gonna live life the way that I want to. I'm gonna do everything I can and I hope for the best and it's gonna be awesome, right? That's the way that they were living life. And God says, that's not the way that it will be for my people. If you do this right, the king that you choose will be separate from that. It will be very different. He will be very different, right? And here's what he goes on. So those are the do nots. Here are the do's in verse 18. It says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Okay, let's start. Just stop there for a second. Right? So, in, so what he's saying is he's saying, like, I want you as a king to make sure you have a copy of the commandments. Make sure you're basically our version of the Bible. Right, which was a, a different number of books back then, but today is the same. See, I want you to have a Bible. And we think about that, and we go, well, that's, that makes sense, right? Like, if you're gonna follow Jesus, you should be reading your Bible, right? Like, this is our primary piece. Here's the deal, though. Guys, the first Bible was not printed in codex form, in, like, book form, was not printed until 1455, just about 300 years before the United States came into being, Right? So they, having a copy of God's word and God's law was not customary. It was not normal. Not everybody had it. Right? In fact, very few people had it. And what God says is that if you're going to be a king and if you're going to lead well, here's what you need. You need a Bible. And this needs to be the center of your leadership. And the moment that you set this down, your leadership will become about you. But if you hold this, and if you keep it with you, and if you learn to follow it, you'll be prosperous, right? This is what he says. He goes on. He says, not just that you would have a copy. He says, uh, and it should be with you, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. So he says, like, don't, don't start it and then stop, right? Just keep going all the days of your life. Make sure that this is the center, right? So what God is doing is he's setting up. He's saying, gosh, guys, I know that you want a king and that you need a king, but at the end of the day, kingship is still about my ruling, God's ruling over his people, right? It's still, it's still meant to have that theocracy kind of component as he is guiding and working in the hearts of his people, most especially the king. If you're going to be a good leader, you need this. And he says, by keeping the words, wait, so that, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, right? So because when we think about this, you think about a king, right? And as soon as a king comes into authority, he's elected king, oftentimes it's, hey, I'm over you. And, right? and then like, the, the more time goes on, what happens is there creates this separation between the king and people because he thinks that he's above the law. Right? I'm the one with power. I'm the one with authority. And what God is saying is like, no, retract, turn it the other way. Leadership in this world, from a king's perspective, is horizontal, right? And the only way that you're going to lead, if you're going to be a great leader, you need to be an even better follower. It's tremendously important. So for whether you're a husband, a father, right? If you're a boss, if you're just a regular, you know, coworker, if you're unemployed, whatever it is, like if you want to have impact in this world, if you want to lead with integrity, right? If you want to lead the best that you can, you need to be a better follower of Jesus first. 
because that's what's going to qualify and make you a great leader. And that's what he's doing. He's setting this up for this king. You lead from this position. You're both broken people. The king is no different, no better than anybody else, except that, guess what? You have this, and you can lead from this. This is how he ends. That you may not excuse me, that he, that he may not turn from, from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that, right, if you do this well, that you may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So there's this tie that if this is the center of your ministry as a king, then things will go well and long for you. But if not, guess what? It won't, right? That's the reality. So there's this need for this right kind of king. Um, and at the center of that, right, is God's word. And so then the question that we have as we start to, as we move past last week's and we move into the time of the kings, as these people demand a king over themselves, and the question is, what are the kings going to do? Are they going to keep this the center of their leadership? Is that what they're going to do? Spoiler alert, I titled the next piece, The Failure of the Kings. So basically, they just, they, for the most part, tank it, okay? So, but let's, let's look at a few of these kings, right? And what kind of king will they be? The first king is a guy named Saul. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Saul uh, tells us in, in 1 Samuel 9 that Saul is tall and handsome, right? So, you know, you're already, you're already spotting a, a good king when you see, hey, he's the tallest dude around and he's, he's, he's appealing to look at. Let's make him king, right? Like, how could that go wrong? Pick the most attractive and tall dude and he's it. Yep. Who would it be? Who is, who is it? In here. It's not me, right? Right? Who's the most attractive and tall dude? Let's not, don't even take that out of here. Okay, forget I said that, okay? Um, but like this is how it starts, right? This is how the story starts. But God says, but it will be someone that I choose. So he chooses the first king by lot. And so what they do is they gather all 12 tribes of Israel together in a space. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then they draw lots, right? And so what happens? They cast lots. And what happens is that the tribe of Benjamin is selected, right? So one of the 12. And so I just imagine in this moment, it's kind of like me last night when Nebraska lost. It's like I'm excited for Wisconsin. You're like, hooray, good job, Benjamin. But... <laughs> You know, but boohoo me, right? Because Benjamin is selected, the other tribes go home sad. Right? The king doesn't come from us, it comes from Benjamin. Right? So there's a certain clan that's identified as they cast lots. And then there's a family, this, this family named Kish, right? This, this father named Kish who's selected. And then all of a sudden Saul's name comes up, and they're like, Woohoo! Saul's gonna be our king. Where is he? He's not here. Where'd he go? <laughs> God enters in, he whispers into Sam, he's like, he's hiding in the baggage. So Saul, handsome and tall, was a scaredy cat. Right, that rhymes, by the way. I just came up with that first service. Saul, handsome and tall, you know. Now you can remember it as you go. It's a little new Christmas jingle. Um, you know, so like Saul, right, they find him in the baggage. So what do they do? They go get Saul, they bring him out from the baggage, and they make him king. That's how it starts, right? Is it going to go well? He's a scaredy cat. He doesn't, he doesn't want this, right? And in fact, Saul actually starts pretty good. He starts pretty well, and he starts off in this good relationship with God, but over time, Saul 
chooses to make the kingdom about himself, right? And so this separation begins to grow, and he thinks that he's above the law, and now it's all about him and not about God. And so God, right, says, gosh, I'm done with you. This is, we need to move on, and it's time for somebody else. Saul gets jealous. He tries to kill this young man, David, who's anointed the next king, right? And it's David. He's this shepherd boy. He enters in really out of the middle of nowhere, right? And he enters into the story, Right? And eventually, as he become king, becomes king, and there's so many rich stories about this guy, but as he becomes king, he creates this massive military conquest, right? and he sets up the, the perimeters. He, he conquers the known world, and so he brings safety and peace to Israel. Right? It's this incredible, incredible thing. And one thing that's great about David is that he always led his men into battle. Right? Can you imagine being king and risking your own life on the front lines? led his men into battle every time until the time that he didn't. So his men are off fighting in a war and David's lounging on the, the top, the roof of his comfy house and as he strolls to the side and puts his arms up on the wall and enjoys the night view and he hears a splashing and he looks down and sees a beautiful woman bathing below. And it's this woman named Bathsheba and she doesn't it doesn't just stop there. It's not like David's gaze just lingers for a while. David in this moment makes a huge mistake. He uses his power as king and says, bring her to me. And he sleeps with her. Turns out she gets pregnant. She's married to this guy named Uriah, who's this incredibly faithful guy in David's army. By the way, Uriah was out fighting a battle and here David is just, just provoking this. And so he invites, and David's back in the corner. What do I do? He invites Uriah home. Good job, Uriah. You've, you've done a great job fighting. You've earned some R&R. Go home and get some special time with your wife, right? Thinking that if he goes home, that when the baby is born, he will think that it was his. It's all deception, manipulation, and cover-up, right? And Uriah, being the awesome guy that he is, says, cool, thanks. I'm going to sleep on your porch, that's his devotion to David. And so David doesn't know what to do again. What does he do? He sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle and ultimately is responsible for his death. David lives in this sin for over a year without anybody confronting him. This guy named Nathan finally comes to David and here's what he says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds. Next slide, sorry. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, uh, and it grew with him and with his children. It used, to, uh, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from the cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him, right? Keep going. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him, right? One more, right? And here's what he says. David's anger was greatly kindled against this man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The story goes on and Nathan says, you are that man. David later on is known as a man after God's own heart. 
But it's not because he was perfect, it was because he was repentant. After David comes Solomon, his son, and Solomon has entered into this this massive conquest kingdom, and Solomon starts really well. He's the wisest man in all of the earth. That's a great gift to have that God gives you, right? Wisest man in all of the earth, right? Um, And then God commissions Solomon to build the temple. So he builds this great temple to the Lord as the center of worship, but then things start changing because it doesn't stop there. Solomon continues to build and build and build and build, so much so that he creates creates this massive accumulation of wealth. He's the, not only the wisest man, but he becomes the wealthiest man. His throne is this special golden throne. He takes thousands of women for concubines and wives. He ultimately becomes the antithesis of the Deuteronomy king in chapter 17. And at the end of his life, Solomon turns from the Lord. And so there's high hopes with David. But high hopes with David and there was repentance, high hopes of Solomon, right? And it just keeps going up and down, up and down. And finally, there's this guy named Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son. He enters in, and he's trying to decide what to do with the kingdom. He's got two groups of people, the old guys, young guys. He listens to the young guys, and as a result, the kingdom divides, and it breaks into two totally different kingdoms. And so here, just to draw this out for you guys here, Okay, so you come start last week, right? You come all the way over here. You got 1,700 years worth of history right here, right? And at the end of that history is the judges. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Let's get a king for ourselves because that will solve our problems, won't it? Yep, let's get it kings, okay? The kingdom starts. It lasts one, two, three, four people. And it's done. Four people, 1,700 years, 1,700 years. Four people, it's done. And it breaks into these two kingdoms. So you've got the North Kingdom and you've got the South Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom starts with this guy named Jeroboam, right? And Jeroboam, it says this, this is, this is unique about Jeroboam. Was, was Jeroboam a good king? This will answer it for you. Jeroboam, he set up this whole thing, this is the context, he set up this whole new nation, basically, and he says, he said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of his people will turn again to their Lord and to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah, right? So basically, here's his, here's his scenario. Jerusalem is the center of worship. So um, when it comes time for festivals and sacrifices and all these things, guess what they're going to do? They're going to go down to Jerusalem, and then their hearts are going to turn back to God. And then they're going to kill me. So what do I do? What does he do? He builds altars in the northern kingdom, not devoted to Yahweh. Not devoted to God, not devoted. He, he reinstalls these high places that were there when they came in, all this pagan worship. In fact, here's a picture of a place in, in the northern city of Dan when Nikki and I were in Israel. We visited this, and this is listed as one of the places in which Jeroboam actually established the high place. And this would have been the exact place where this cult worship would have been. And you can see the, the iron there that they kind of reconstructed what might have looked like. Guys, this is where they were, this is where they turned. This is the heart, this is the heart of Jeroboam. His heart turns. He says, I don't care about Yahweh. I don't want my people to care about Yahweh. I just want my power. And so he builds these places. They would have offered sacrifices, including their own children. 
It's terrible. It's terrible. This is the heart of Jeroboam. And then what's the heart of the people? What do the people do? They go to Dan and they worship at Dan because in their mind it's no different. It's no different. Right? And so if we come back here, right? So you got these four kings, right? And this, this northern kingdom, right? So it starts with Jeroboam, goes for about 200 years. Uh, there's 19 kings in this time, 19 different kings. Uh, do you want to guess how many of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? Zero. Zero people. How's the kingdom working out for you guys? Right? How much has changed since over here? And the judges, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Wow, nothing has changed, right? It's the same thing, 19 kings. Guys, these guys are so bad that a third of them were assassinated. The, the shortest stint of, of, their, of their career was seven days. And it gets to the end, and there's this big X, because God is fed up with the idolatry. He allows the Assyrians to come in and to invade in 721 BC, and they take the northern kingdom, they destroy it permanently, and they take them into exile. And they live in exile. And that's it. That's the end of the northern kingdom. So how well would the southern kingdom do? Right? The southern kingdom doesn't do much better. There's a couple of bright spots, right? but there's 18 kings or so, eight of which are good, 10 of which are bad. So of the 37 total kings between the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, only eight were good. Do you see how this is failing to bring restoration into the world? Because everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Where is the hope in this story? Right? Where is the hope in this story, right? And in the southern kingdom, right, if we go to the southern kingdom, right, it does a little bit better. It lasts for about 350 years. But again, God does the same thing. Under this guy named Hosea, the last two kings are just totally miserable and abominable. And so God says, I'm done. He allows the Babylonians this time to come in and they attack Jerusalem. They utterly destroy Jerusalem. In fact, Jeremiah recounts this. The people actually have to, under his siege, have to tear apart their own homes to put against the wall to keep the wall of Jerusalem, which by the way is like super high and thick from like falling in. So their houses are ruined. The city is completely ruined. The wall is completely eventually destroyed. Um, the temple is completely destroyed in 587 BC and they're taken, they're taken into Babylon. I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of these people. Everything about your life is now done. It's gone. Your home your place of worship, you've even been taken captive into another country, what would you be feeling? And how much hope would you have? My guess is, is that it would be very, very little. Very little, right? Because the story continues. And you look at this, like the story kind of ends. We're like, gosh, like where is the hope in this world? What is God doing? What is he up to? God, you said that you would make this right. You said in Genesis 3.15 that I would cause this, this battle to happen and you'd eventually win. 1,700 years plus another 400 years plus more silence later on. It takes forever for God to work out his plan here. How would you be feeling in this space? Pretty hopeless, I would think, for 1,700 years, 2,000 plus years. And so what we see is that the time from the judges, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, to the time of the kings, when they basically did the exact same thing, nothing has really changed. 
And God has failed, not failed, God has yet to restore the world to the way that it's supposed to be. So how does this story end? And as we wrap up, have you ever noticed, like, where's the hope in this story? Because you read Kings, and, you, and, you, and you look, there's this other book in the Old Testament. It's by the book, it's by the title Chronicles. You ever notice that these two books are basically the same thing? It's like two people randomly wrote the same thing, and they put it into the same Bible, like, a, like an error. Like, what are, you, what are you guys doing? It's the same thing. It's the same book, same content. Here's why they exist. Because Kings is a record of all of the kings before the exile. When the exile comes, these people are left hopeless. And so what somebody did is they took all of this content and they collected it into a brand new book called Chronicles. And what they did is they eliminated a lot of the bad stuff that happened here and they add a lot of positive stuff in here. And so what they're doing is that they're inviting the reader to see with fresh lens that this king, this Genesis 3.15 person is still yet to come. Don't give up hope because there is still hope. Here's the unique thing about Chronicles is that in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't end with Malachi like it does in our Bible. The Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew canon ends with Chronicles. So what you see is king, nope, he's not the one. 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 And it ends with this anticipation. Who will be the king? New Testament starts, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how it fits. And it says Jesus enters into the story. We begin to remember and see that these thousands of years have gone by. And it's easy for us, 2,000 years removed on the other side of Jesus, to miss the anticipation and the thrill that Jesus would have brought. And as Jesus, God, became flesh in this baby little boy, which is what we will talk about, obviously, on Christmas Eve, right? But Chronicles ends, there's this massive failure of the kings to make things right, but there's this king named Jesus Christ who ultimately would make things right. I wanna end with this illustration. I've got a friend who lives in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, who's a pastor, and so he shared this, and I just loved it, and so I thought I'd steal it, but he, uh, he and his wife were out running uh, the other day, and uh, they were running by a golf course and uh, happened to find a golf ball, and so, or his wife, I think, and she brought it back and said, hey, honey, look what I found on my run. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a golf ball. Yeah, interesting. Next run, they went out, came back, had found another golf ball, right? Oh, look, there's another one. And it was in this moment that my friend, he said, I had, I had this realization, this epiphany. How many golf balls would we find if we actually were looking for them? So he said, over the course of the next week, we looked for golf balls. Look how many they found in that first week. He goes, a couple weeks went by. Pause for dramatic effect. It's a lot of golf balls. 
And his epiphany was this, when you're looking for things, you'll find them. What if this year at Christmas time, we started looking for opportunities to bring hope? Because hope is the most powerful thing that we can offer somebody, whether they are inside the church or outside the church, because it gives us this righteous discontent that I'm not okay with the way things are, and I long for life to be better than it actually is. People are saying that uh, this Christmas might be the first and best opportunity that the church has had for outreach in the last two years because of the state of the world. I think it's both inside and outside the church. And so I encourage you and I challenge you this week to look for opportunities to bring hope. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up our service, Lord, we, we think that in just a few days we're gonna come to this, this room right here and it will be lit by candlelight in the darkness of the room and together we uh, will enjoy the festive and beautiful and uh, powerful moment that is Christmas Eve. And as we reflect and look at Jesus, as we see, uh, see Jesus in this story, as he enters into the world, uh, uh, God incarnate into a tiny little baby, uh, the most unlikely hero in this story, Lord, I pray that you would give us fresh vision to think back and to see the story from the people in that story's perspective because for 2,000 plus years before that, 2,500 years before that, they've been waiting for God to make things right. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a thrill of hope, not just hope, but a powerful, intrinsic, awesome thrill where we not just see hope, but we feel it moving in our hearts. Give us Jesus this Christmas and nothing else. Amen.